God, we do thank you for just the, the scandal of your love and your grace towards us in Christ. God, we thank you that we are a people who have the privilege of sitting under the authority and the power of your word. God, I pray that you'd help us not to take that for granted today. But Lord, I pray that our, our posture would be one of, of receptivity today. God, that you would search us, that you would poke us, that you'd prod us, God, in, in a way that would reveal our sin. God, areas that we need to confess. And Lord, I pray that we would be filled with the fullness of who you are in this moment. God, I pray that you are a God of love, but you're also a God of justice. You're a God of grace, but you're also a, a holy God. And so I pray that we'd feel that in this text. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, like many of you, uh, personally really enjoy uh, the courtroom uh, drama. And uh, th there are certain um, TV shows and movies that, that catch my attention, and, uh, and it usually has to do with something like there's drama in, in a courtroom. I recently watched the O.J. Simpson documentary, and, and I'm a big sports fan, but one of the, the best parts for me about that documentary was, uh, were the, the courtroom scenes, and, and just seeing two sides present their side of the argument, and you know they're using evidence, and they're interviewing witnesses, and they're just kind of pulling you in to the narrative and to the drama uh, of it all. And, and I love that, that feeling of just, of just seeing these two sides kind of go at it because there's so much at stake. There, there's, there's so much on the line. And, and the reason why I share that with you this morning is because our passage this morning in chapters four, five, and six were written in such a way as to put us in the scene of a courtroom. Uh, th these chapters in Hosea, we are meant to feel the drama of what takes place between God and between Israel. That there is something going on in chapters four, five, and six that kind of pulls us into the narrative uh, of what's going on between the relationship of God and Israel. Now, if, even if you begin chapter four here, look at verse one for me, just to, just to kind of set the table uh, for our time together. It says, hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of Israel. Now that word controversy can be translated as charge or case. And it's, it's language that was used in Israel's court system. This, this would have been language used at a legal procedure at a city gate. And so even as our passage begins, we have this, this scene here of God bringing a charge and a case against the nation of Israel. So one thing that I want us to feel today is, is really to feel kind of the drama of, of this courtroom, that we're to feel kind of the heaviness of what's really on the line between God and Israel as we get kind of pulled in to the narrative here, that we're kind of observers of something that's going on between God and Israel that forces us to evaluate in our own lives, like, is this true of me? And yet one thing that we're gonna learn here that unlike different courtroom scenes that we see today, this is not a back and forth between God and Israel. This is not God presenting his side and Israel responding. No, this is entirely one-sided. This is God through the prophet of Hosea just laying just an onslaught of accusations against the nation of Israel. We're gonna hear threats of punishment and judgment we're gonna see some really vivid descriptions and intense metaphors of the way in which Israel has fallen away from God and God's response to that. 
And so the drama is not this back and forth, but the drama is because of the scandal of Israel's sinfulness against God. In fact, our main idea this morning has to do with with God's justice, that God's justice demands accountability for our sin in order to provoke true repentance. And so again, we're gonna see and watch and observe this courtroom between God and Israel, but it's, it's forcing us to think about our own lives, about areas of our own lives that we need to repent and to genuinely repent. Before we jump in, I think it's important to know that the rest of our time in Hosea will be dealing with strictly prophetic literature, that the metaphor between Hosea and Gomer, how God asked Hosea to marry an unfaithful woman in Gomer is actually going away. And so for the rest of our time, we've got this genre of of scripture, this prophetic literature um, that for a lot of us might be new to hear today. But we're gonna hear just future judgments upon Israel that God has for his people because of their unfaithfulness to him and the covenants. I've broken our, uh, our section or our, our passage today into three main sections, and they all start uh, with the letter A. So the first section deals with chapter four, verses one through three, that's titled The Announcement of Judgments. The Announcement of Judgment. Section two deals with the bulk of our passage, chapter four, verse, verses four, all the way to chapter five, verse 14, dealing with the accountability to the knowledge of God, the accountability. <clears throat> and then third, the last section deals with chapter five, verse 15, running all the way through chapter six, the artificial repentance, the artificial repentance. So let's begin with the first section, God's announcement of judgment. These first three chapters of chapter four, it really begins with a plea to hear what God has to say about Israel, for he has a case, he has a controversy against them. Chapter four introduces the second major section of this book that will actually take us all the way through chapter nine. But here we have an announcement from God about the future judgment against the nation of Israel. Now, the second half of verse one of chapter four, we see Israel's offense. And the way that God kind of lays out his case, he first summarizes three general sins of omission. He says that there's a sin of no faithfulness, no steadfast love, and no knowledge of God in the land. And the result of these three sins of omission is basically the, the specified list in verse two. But before we get to verse two, I just... I just want us to to notice what happens when we don't have the right understanding of God and the right love for God and the right faithfulness to God in how we live. This is really kind of the beginning of falling into idolatry when we don't have the right thinking, the right loving, and the right living uh, in faithfulness to God. Now, we looked at this in 1 Peter That really, when we talk about sanctification and growing in our relationship with the Lord, it starts with having a right understanding and a right view of God because that impacts our desires, that impacts our affections and our passions, that influences how we live our lives. And so the accusation against Israel is that they lack the knowledge of God in the land. In fact, Hosea will actually say this six more times throughout these three chapters, a lack of knowledge and a lack of understanding of who God is. 
This is the foundation for God's case against Israel. This is why he will announce judgment on the nation. It's a failure to understand all that God is. And look, this is a challenge for us today because we need a full and biblical view of who God is. Now, when I say that, you're probably thinking, well, yeah, we're, we're College Park Church. Like, we believe in the Bible. Like, we have a, we have a high view of God. And, and I think that's correct. But what I wanna call us to this morning is not just a biblical view of God, but also a balanced view of God. See, the tendency in the Christian life is to, is to kind of tip towards the side of God being about love and grace and mercy and faithfulness and slow to anger. Like we love that side of God. And we tend to neglect the other side of God, uh, of God being a God that is holy and just and righteous and sufficient. And so we, we need just a balanced view of God because one thing that we'll see with Israel is their first step into spiritual adultery and idolatry was having an imbalanced view of God. They were tipping towards the grace of God that was really the result of their idols within their hearts. So we need to know this morning, God is a God that is holy, he's just, he's righteous, he's all sufficient, that, that God is not some crazy ex-boyfriend who's up in heaven and, and he's like so desperate for us to love him in return. God, God's not this, this stage five clinger who, who's thinking to himself, man, I just, I just wish that these people would love me in return. Man, if only that they would love me. He, he's not doing that up in heaven. Like, you are not the center of God's world. His glory is. His majesty is. The beauty of his name is at the center of God's heartbeat and his plan for all, all of mankind. Now, does, does God love you? Absolutely. Is God for you if you're in Christ? Totally. D did God send his only son to die for you? Yes, he did. But, but the motivation for that was not because he's so desperate to having you on his team. His motivation is that he's after his glory. And so God, before the, the beginning of time, he has set this plan into motion of, of thinking, what's going to give me the most glory? And they conclude, the Trinity kind of conclude together that, hey, let's send Jesus, God's only son, to die in the place of our enemies. That's what's gonna get us most glory. And so yes, God loves you. God demonstrates his love by sending Jesus, but the motivation is not for you, it's for his glory. And so when we, when we change that, when we twist that, or we emphasize one side uh, 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 over the other side of God, we start to create kind of a me-centered Christianity. We start to have a Christianity where, where God starts to serve our needs rather than having a God-centered Christianity. And that is exactly what took place in the nation of Israel. They did not have this right knowledge of God, and so it results in idolatry and further sin. Look at even verse two. There are six more specified sins here. We've got swearing and lying, murder, stealing, adultery, and, and even bloodshed here. And, and he throws in bloodshed because there was this war that was taking place during this time between Syria and Israel. And, and in this war, we've got Syria and Israel who attacked Judah, the southern kingdom. 
And they're trying to get Judah to, to join them and, and this other, the, the other kind of coalition of nations to take down the Assyrian Empire. But Judah, the southern kingdom, refuses. They say, no, no, we're not going to join you guys. And yet they actually still attack Judah and they defeat most of Judah. But the result, Judah doesn't go to God for deliverance. They go to the Assyrian king. And so that's why we have bloodshed listed in verse two, because the nation of Israel and Judah, they're trying to expand their boundaries. They're not content with what God had given them. So they're, uh, they're, they're um, uh, experiencing bloodshed and war during this time. Now, some scholars believe that Hosea's messages here in four, five, and six actually comes almost two decades after chapters two and three. Two decades, almost 20 years after God in chapter two prophesies about the coming judgment of Israel. This is almost two decades after uh, God has Hosea go and, and buy Gomer back into relationship with him to demonstrate his love for her. Like that, that's two decades of, of an immense amount of sin just kind of piling up. Now this list of, of violations that God lays out in this kind of cosmic courtroom, if you, if you read verse two, it should ring a bell. Like when you see verse two, what should that remind you of? Where is that in scripture? Well, these are the 10 commandments that this list that God lays out in this case against Israel, it mirrors the 10 commandments. That having no faithfulness means that they were disloyal. They were running to other gods, which violates the first commandment. You shall not have other gods before me. You see lying, violating another command. You've got adultery and murder and so on. You've got the 10 commandments from Exodus 20 that God gave to Moses to give to his people to form kind of the basics of how to be in relationship with him. Like God's trying to help his people after uh, the parting of the Red Sea. He's thinking, okay, now that we're in relationship, now that I've saved you, this is how we function together in this relationship. And so God, in his case against Israel, takes them back to the basics and says, look, nation of Israel, you can't even be faithful with the basics. You can't even follow the 10 commandments. So God is just laying out his, his argument against this nation. And then in verse three, we read, it says, therefore the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Again, this type of language should remind you of something. Where have you seen that before? The, the beast of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish and the sea. Where is that from in scripture? It's from Genesis 1, the, the creation accounts. But notice that this is not about creation kind of exploding in, in this glorious, majestic beauty and, and everything in, in, in this harmonious relationship. No, that's not the picture that we see here. Hosea paints a picture of God actually undoing creation that the land is mourning instead of being prosperous. The creatures are being taken away instead of multiplying and being fruitful. Now, what is, what is Hosea trying to communicate? What do you, if you remember last week, we, we saw Israel's pursuit of idolatry. They were chasing after other gods. They were primarily chasing after that god named Baal. And we looked at last week how Baal, they believed, was the god of life. He was the God of, of agriculture and fertility. And, and we looked at last week how at this time in Israel's history, they were incredibly successful. 
They're very, very wealthy and, and prosperous. And yet, instead of giving God the credit, instead of giving thanks to God, they actually give credit to Baal. They actually say that all of these blessings, they're from our, our lover, uh, Baal. And so God then, in this text, is planning to show Israel that Baal has no power to give her blessings. He does so by imposing a famine and destruction upon their land. That Hosea wants uh, them all to know that whoever is living upon this land will feel the consequences of their sin. Now, why? Why is that the case? Well, it's because Israel looked to Baal for what only God could give them. And so God, out of his love, out of his grace, is actually starting to rip away some of the idols in Israel's land. Look, God does the same thing to us, doesn't he? Like if you look at your own life and you look at certain idols that, that you've wrestled with, something that God tends to do to protect his people and sometimes even to discipline his people is he will actually remove idols in our life. You've probably had this happen to your own life. Like if you've idolized money or relationships or a certain type of possession and, and that thing or that person just kind of uh, vanishes from your life, like almost out of nowhere, like it's partly because God is trying to protect you from further sin and or he's trying to discipline you. And we see that with what God is doing with their land and with their blessings. Now, I believe that the essence of Israel's sin here, what God has against Israel, is the fact that they, that they are not recognizing God being the source of all of the blessings and gifts that he has given them. That they failed to recognize God as the source of all that they have, and they have failed to give thanks to God for that. Now, if, if you hear that and you're like, okay, yeah, we need to give thanks for God. Yeah, that's very basic. I, I want you to just to know that that is the first step into idolatry. It is a lack of understanding and recognizing that God owns everything and that everything that we have is from the hand of God and a failure to give thanks to God, you are taking one step closer into falling into idolatry. Like this is exactly what Paul in, in Romans lays out for us about, uh, about idolatry, about exchanging God for other things. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Did you see the progression there? Like, look, we, we looked at this last week. We looked at four uh, foundational idols. We looked at power and control and comfort and approval. We looked at those, those four foundational idols, how, they, how from them all kinds of other idols and sin um, are, are in our lives. And so you might be thinking, well, how do you fall into idolatry to begin with? This is the first step. And what Paul is outlining here and what Israel is demonstrating before us is when we suppress the truth about who God is, when we suppress the reality that God has created everything and that God has given us everything that we have in our lives, that is the first step to then exchanging the glory of God for other images, that we exchange the glory of God for idolatry. That's exactly what happened to Israel. 
This is, a, this is a case study for us to say what not to do with idolatry. And yet I'm reading this, I'm studying this, I'm wondering like, man, what, in what ways do we do the same thing? Like in what ways do we fall into this pattern of idolatry? Now, we're, we're way more sneaky than Israel. We're, we're not as blatant as Israel, who in chapter two, verse five, just says all these blessings are from Baal. We, we don't necessarily do that. But I wonder in what other ways, maybe indirectly, do we fail to recognize that all that we have is from God and give thanks to God for it? I mean, you think about it for a moment. Like, do you live in the reality that everything you have is from God? Like, God owns it all. Like, you don't own one cent of your money. Like, your personality is from God. Like, your relationships are from God. Your spouse, your kids, your friendships, they're all from God. The air that you breathe is from God. Like, and maybe you're thinking, well, yeah, I know that. But, okay, do you live in the reality of that and give thanks to God for that? You might be thinking to yourself, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, salvation is from God. I get that. Like the spiritual growth in my life is from God. But come on, Chris, like I, I earned my money. Like I, I got the job that I have. I, it, was, it was my work ethic that got me there. And maybe you're thinking that you need to know like even your work ethic is a gift from God. Even the gifts that you use to make money is from God. Your discipline, your creative juices, your wits, your ability to make people laugh and be hospitable, all of that is from God. Do you live in that reality? Do you give thanks on a regular basis for, for what God has given you? Not just giving thanks during Thanksgiving in a couple of months but regularly stopping and identifying this is from God. Mom and dad, do you talk to your kids about the things that you have in that way, that all of this is from the Lord? We almost need to remove the, the, the personal pronoun of my or mine when we're talking to one another about the things that, that, the, Lord, that the Lord has given us, that it's all from him. And we see Israel falling into idolatry because of a failure to identify all of it is from him. And I wonder if we're reading chapter four, verse one, in today's time period, I wonder if God would write verse one saying this, hear the word of the Lord, O College Park Church, for the Lord has a controversy, the Lord has a case with the inhabitants of the land. I, I wonder if if scripture read that way, what, what would God's case be against us today? What would God's controversy be with you personally? What, what type of list would he lay out in verse two based on the idols in your life? See, when we read this and we're, man, we're going back in Old Testament history, I don't want us to create this distance and this gap between what Israel struggled with and what we struggle with because man, this, this hits us in the chest. Like there's a list that God has for, for things in our own life and there is an announcement of judgment upon us unless we are in Christ and repent of our sins. And so this first section, God is announcing this judgment upon Israel. But number two, we also see the accountability to the knowledge of God. 
And so God not only announces judgment, but here we see the scope of God's judgment upon the people of Israel. And look, this is gonna get a little, a little uh, dense here. There, there are a lot of verses that kind of move through here. And this is some heavy things that God lays out for the nation of Israel as threats of punishment that will happen in the future. But notice, let me point this out before we, before we get in here, that God's accountability first starts with those that were most culpable, namely the priests. Look at verse four of chapter four. He says, yet let no one contend and let none accuse. That God through Hosea is saying, wait a minute, before you start pointing fingers and and, and blame shifting, let me tell you who's most accountable here. He says, for with you is my contention, O priest. Okay, so that's who he's starting with. Even chapter five, verse one, He says, hear this, O priest, pay attention, O house of Israel. He's starting with those who are in uh, positions of leadership and spiritual uh, leadership. Now go back to chapter four, verses uh, five through nine. He says, so you, the priest, stumble by day, and the prophet also will stumble with you by night. Basically, he's saying, day and night, my people are stumbling. You're departing from the Lord all the time. And he says, I will destroy your mother, which is the, the priestly institution. And my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Note that. It's not because they didn't have any knowledge, but the next phrase it says, but because you, the priests, have rejected knowledge. And so God says, therefore, I'm also going to reject you from being my priest, and you've forgotten the law your God. I will also forget your children, the people of the land. The more the priests multiply, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory on the earth, this exalted position, into shame, a lower position. They, the priests, feed on the sin of my people, and they are greedy for their iniquity. Like priests, I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. Now, what is happening here? Why why does God start with the priests here as far as who is accountable? Well, it was the priests who were to be the teachers of the law. They were responsible for ensuring that that the view of God that is depicted in the Old Testament was taught and was lived in the reality of. If you look at Deuteronomy 31, verse nine, it says, then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. So God starts with those who are most accountable, those who were in positions of authority. This is kind of crazy if you you think about this. Like God's chosen people who've been rescued from Pharaoh, who through the the parting of the Red Sea, where they were given this mark as being God's people. They were given the law. They were given prophets and priests. And yet there came a point in their history and their relationship with the Lord where they stopped following the laws of God. They stopped teaching about who God is and what God is like. Look, this is, this is like, if you, if you come tonight, the prayer and worship night, it'd be like if, if me and the elders stood up in front of our church and we said, you know what, College Park Church, we're no longer gonna teach the Bible anymore. You know, the Bible is this ancient book. It's, it's outdated. It's not relevant. We, we don't like how it talks about our sin. So you know what, on Sunday mornings, we're just gonna tell stories and we're gonna share some jokes and that's going to be our time together. Like imagine what that would do to the spiritual condition of our congregation. Imagine the impact 
of your view of God if, if the word of the Lord is not central to the people of God? That our spiritual condition would be deeply impacted, but also our view of God would shrink and our idols would increase. Like that is exactly what was happening with Israel here, with the priests and the prophets. They were no longer projecting this big view of God and it was deeply impacting the spiritual condition of the people. That's why leadership is so important. Look, we can take this, this principle and apply it to today. You can look at positions of authority and, and, and say that there is a more strict accountability for those in positions of leadership and authority. You look at Hebrews 13, 17, for the leaders of the church, they'll be held accountable. That teachers, according to James 3, 1, will be held accountable in a more strict way. Husbands, I, I hope you're, you're hearing this. Like You are a leader. You are, you are in a position of authority in your home, and you will be held accountable because of that. Like parents, mom and dad, you have a position of authority over your kids. Employers, you have a, a position of authority, and so on, that too much is given, much is required. There should be this weight and this responsibility because we've been given influence to shape the people around us and we will be held accountable because of that. So God starts with the priests, but not only those in positions of authority, God's accountability will extend to all his people. Hosea chapter four, verse one, chapter four, uh, verse three, verse six, verse nine, it all talks about how God will hold all of his people accountable for the sins that they have committed. Now, if you know your Old Testament history, you might be wondering, why now? Like, why does God go off here? Like, why is he pronouncing judgments? Well, we need to remember that this is 700 years after God gave the law to Moses. It's 700 years after the law that that Moses wrote on stone that that the people of God had to, to live according to the commands of God. 700 years of living in unfaithfulness to God, living in sin. This is even 200 years after the the nation of Israel, the the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Judah built those those golden calves and worshiped those other gods. It's 200 years where God was slow to anger and abounding in love. 200 years where God was extending mercy and grace and love. 200 years where he did not pour out his wrath and his judgment on his people. But at this point in history, God has had enough. That God is now prophesying about a day in which the full judgment and wrath will be upon this people. Why? Well, it's because God is not only your creator, but God is also the law maker. Because God is the lawmaker, he has full authority to hold us accountable and to pronounce judgment based on how we live. Look, I want you to feel kind of the weight of that, that as we think about a day in which we will all have to stand before God and give an account based on how we live, I want us to feel the burden and the weight of that future reality. Like, yes, we are saved in Christ. Yes, we are not saved by our works, but we will be judged based on how we live our lives here on the earth. 
And I just want to ask you the question, do, do you have time in your daily or, or your weekly reflection where you think about that reality that you will have to give an account before the Lord Almighty based on how you lived your life here on the earth? Like, like do, you, do you think about that on a regular and consistent basis? Or do you think, well, you know, I, I, I prayed some prayer, like I'm saved by grace through faith, not by my works. Like, I don't need to worry about that day. And that's true on one hand, but it's untrue on the other because there is a judgment that the believers, that the people of God will go through that Paul even alludes to in Romans chapter 14. He says, for we, talking about believers, will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God, that you will stand before the judgment seat of God. And according to 1 Corinthians 9, you will be rewarded based on the good works that you performed here in this life, that you will give an account based on how you live your life. Feel the weight of that. Like, yes, we are saved through the blood of Jesus. His righteousness covers us. That, that is our salvation. And yet that doesn't mean that good works are useless, it doesn't mean that, that the pursuit of godliness and holiness is not a worthy pursuit. See, Paul even says in Romans 2, verse 6, that God will render to each one according to his works. Now, Paul does not mean that our works save us, but that works will confirm that we are saved. Jesus, in Matthew 7, you go to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that, a fruit does not make a tree good, but that fruit shows that the tree is good. And so for a Christian who has trusted in Jesus alone for salvation, your life will then confirm that reality by producing good fruit and good works in your life. Look, this is not a call for perfection. This is a, this is a call for what, what trajectory is your life on? Like, are, are, is your life pointing in the direction of Christ or is your life pointing to the direction of the world and in your flesh? See, part of the Christian life, it's not a call for perfection, but when the trajectory of your life turns towards yourself or towards the world, we are daily repenters, that we turn our lives back towards Jesus and we confess our sins so that we can produce more good fruit and more good works in this, in this life. And so we read Hosea, we read these chapters, and again, we're looking at this courtroom scene between God and Israel. And yet for, for those of us who are in the new covenant, in a relationship with Jesus, like this is a warning for us. This is a warning that there is a future judgment for us that will stand before the Lord. The question is, will you stand before God? And will God say, well done, good and faithful servants? Will God say those words to you? Or Will God say, man, like you wasted opportunity after opportunity to display my worth to those around you. Man, you, you wasted time, you wasted resources. You, you spent more time on social media than you did actually praying to me. Like, will God say these words to you on that day? Well done, good and faithful servant. Hosea reminds us that there is a judgment that is coming. In fact, Hosea ends chapter five with just several astonishing metaphors of God's future dealings with Israel and Judah. 
In verses 12 through 14, we get different metaphors of God, what God is like. God, in verse 12, is described as a moth, which should probably be translated as pus. If you look at the context here, we have verse 13. Israel is described as being wounded and sick, yet unable uh, to be healed or cured. So God is almost like pus in Israel's wounds, that, that Israel's this wounded soldier, unable to be healed. So God, who all throughout the Old Testament is fighting for Israel, but now is turning and fighting against Israel. Hosea is, is jarring his audience. He is trying to, to wake up the nation of Israel with, with this, uh, the imagery here. Verse 14, we see the second imagery, God being described as a lion, that he will tear his prey Israel to, to pieces. He will carry off what remains. No one will be able to stop him. God uh, will actually use the Assyrian Empire to do this against Israel and to Judah. And so with all of this, we see Israel will be held accountable for the knowledge that they have about God. And we learn that God does not need to hit us in order for us to fall. He just merely needs to let go. And we see that happening in the nation of Israel. Now, the last section of uh, our passage today uh, has uh, to do with chapter 5, verse 15, and all of chapter 6. That here we've seen the announcement of judgment that is coming. We've seen the accountability that God will have for his people. And now I want to look at the response that Israel has towards God. Now, you come to chapter 6, verse 1, and you read, it says, Come, let us return to the Lord for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. Now you read that and, and you think to yourself, finally, like a good response by Israel. Like finally, they're, they're starting to repent. Like something clicked and a light bulb has gone off and they're starting to respond to God as they should. And yet, what I wanna lay out for us for the rest of our time together is that this is actually a picture of an artificial repentance. This is half-hearted what Israel is doing with God. They actually won't fully repent until the last chapter in chapter 14. Now, if you, if you read the first three verses of chapter six, I want you to ask the question, what is missing in their response so that this is not biblical repentance. What is missing so this isn't a genuine um, response of repentance? We've already read verse one. Let's read verses two and three. It said, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. You read that, like, what is missing? If you understand biblical repentance, what's missing in their response? They're missing the reality of actually owning and confessing their sin and their guilt before the Lord. And really, that is what God is asking them to do. Look at chapter five, verse 15. God says, I will return again to my place until what? until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress, earnestly seek me. God says God desires that they acknowledge their sin and that they confess their guilt before them. And Israel here is not doing it. 
So we need to know as we think about biblical repentance, genuine repentance, one of the key ingredients is our confession and our owning of our sin. And Israel is not there yet. I love what uh, Kevin DeYoung says about, about confession. He says, confession of sin is one of the missing ingredients in the life of today's Christian, that we feel bad all the time, but often it's over the wrong things. And when we do feel sorry for our sin, we don't know what to do with it. We feel like we would be cheapening the blood of Christ if we confessed again. So we hesitate to repent. We feel bad, but we don't confess and enjoy a clean conscience. But confession is one of the, the, the most important ingredients of repentance, and Israel is not doing that. In fact, they go on and, and they really paint a picture of, of half-hearted response to God, which I think is one of the most dangerous types of repentance. It's almost even more dangerous than not repenting at all. Look at verse two. They, they say, God will revive us after two days, and on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Look, they, they assume that God's judgment would only be for a short time. That's only gonna be for two days and then he'll cease judging, uh, judging them. And then verse four, God describes their loyalty as a morning cloud and, and dew that goes, early, that goes away early. Look, that, that's not a compliment to the nation of Israel. And then in verse six, they gave empty sacrifice to God. And yet God desires what? God desires love and knowledge of him. Look, you can even see in this, in this response, God is lamenting and God is like wrestling with, what do I do with the nation of Israel? Like verse four, he's saying, man, what, what do I do with you? Like you're, you're starting to see that you need to repent, but you're not fully owning your sin and, and they won't fully own it until chapter 14 where God has to literally give the right words to say to Israel in order to repent. We'll get there in a couple of weeks. But God's wrestling because verse three is true of chapter six, that God will come as sure as the spring rains at water the earth. That, that's true. But verse seven is also true, that they have been unfaithful. They have transgressed the covenant. So God is, is pleading with them to truly repent, not just to offer empty sacrifice, but he desires love and knowledge of him. And so as we close this morning, I, I want us just to see this half-hearted repentance, this, this artificial response in three different ways. And, and I wanna unpack it for us just to challenge your own repentance towards God. That here with Israel, I see this in, in three different ways. First, their repentance is delayed. They have a, a delayed, remember, this is almost two decades after chapters two and three. That's, that's a pretty delayed response when, when you're trying to get right with the Lord. And then number two, they, they don't take full responsibility for their sin. Again, they don't own it until chapter 14. They kind of explain it away. And then third, they hold to cheap grace. That verse one of chapter six, they just assume God will bind them up. They just assume that God will heal them, that God will forgive them, even if they don't change their lifestyle. They think, yeah, God will do all these things and we're still gonna worship Baal. We're still gonna have all of, of these idols. And so as you think about this picture of, of God's judgments and, and how serious God takes our sin, you see this picture of, of artificial repentance. 
How would you describe your own repentance to the Lord? What type of of language would you use to to describe your daily repenting of sin? Is it immediate? Is is your repentance heartfelt? Is Is it sorrowful? Or is your repentance, do you only repent when you're caught sinning? Do you kind of minimize and, and explain your sin? Do you blame shift your sin or do you take full responsibility for it? Is your repentance marked by real change that you confess your sin, but you also turn from it and you turn towards Christ? See, part of the, the purpose of these chapters is to provoke real and genuine repentance in our lives as we see what not to do with Israel. This is a case study for us. This is a warning for us. And so as we think about Hosea and just how to think about these chapters, like there should be something bubbling over in your heart of thanksgiving and gratefulness for Jesus, that Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago made a way for us to be able to repent, that 2,000 years ago, Jesus took our place on the cross. He paid our penalty. He absorbed the wrath of God in order to enable us to be free from our sin, to fully repent from our sin so that God can be our master and our king. See, as we read this through the lens of the new covenant, we're filled with thankfulness. And yet on the other hand, you and I still battle sin every day. <laughs> You and I still battle the idols that are in our life. So so how do we close that gap? We close that gap by daily repenting, by hourly repenting, by not taking God's grace for granted, by looking at everything that we have and saying, God, this is all from you. And we live in that level of thankfulness. And so this morning, as we we close and as we just sing another song, I just want us to feel the weight of God's holiness and and that there is a judgment coming for those who are not in Christ. And I want our hearts to be filled with with a thankfulness for Jesus. And and I hope that that would result in in a, a pursuit of repenting from our sin. Look, the barrier for repenting is not in the fact that God's arms aren't open wide. That's not a barrier. That's true for us. God's arms are open wide for us to come to him and repent. It's, it's on us to own our sin, to be filled with a godly grief that leads to repentance. And so let's respond to the Lord as we sing. Let me close this in prayer. God, we thank you so much for the grace that you just lavish upon us. God, we thank you that that, Lord, that we have the ability to repent because you have sought us when we were your strangers God, thank you that you have given us the gift of faith, that you've given us the ability to see Jesus for for who he is. And God, I pray as we we just reflect on on your holiness, your justice, God, your hatred for sin, God, I pray that you would help us to hate our own sin all the more. God, I pray that you would help us to understand that, that Jesus died for the sin that we so often just entertain in our lives. So God, give us hearts that are quick, quickly to repent. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.